the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. sets the tone for the conversation, doesn't it? Quite nicely, I think. Uh, that recording by Irving Kaufman demonstrating that as clear back as 93 years ago, uh, there were questions about gender identity and the roles that we have uniquely or not, dependent upon your opinion, in society today. Uh, there, of course, are differences, and those differences are not based in opinion, but based on science and biological reality. So how do we go about understanding those differences and being able to work together with each other? A new book out attempts to address this topic. It's called The Battle of the Sexes, Raising Sexual IQ to Lower Sexual Conflict and Empower Lasting Love. And while it sounds like in one of those woo books uh, that you want to wrap around, paper bag around, not at all. In fact, uh, this book is written by Dr. Joe Malone, who has a Ph.D. in health and human performance with a minor in neuropsychology and specialization in gender-specific wellness. He's taught at Tennessee Middle State University and lectured at Vanderbilt University. Um, and uh, this new book really gets down into some of the details that we've been trying to kind of brush underneath the carpeting, uh, and that is to understand what the differences are. And if we understand them better, we can hopefully, at the end of the day, relate better at multiple Layers And Dr. Malone, great to have you with us on the program. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about this. Uh, you know, there's a lot of discussion these days about gender identity, gender fluidity. Uh, as the song suggests, masculine women, feminine men, everything seems to be topsy-turvy here. And I, and I wonder um, if, if this is just a new social norm, or are we working too hard at trying to fix a problem that isn't there, and in the process, ignoring the reality of the scientific, biological differences between men and women. We're trying to fix a problem that isn't there, uh, clearly. And again, there's always been very, very small numbers of people, Craig, that are born uh, you know, with certain situations that are 
you know, uh, very aberrant from the rest of society. But again, they have very, very small numbers as compared to the very, very large number that are born, you know, clearly male, clearly female. There's, there are, you know, a very tiny number that are intersex, whether they have both uh, types of genitalia. But um, again, very, very small. And again, the other things that, you know, the folks that would be preaching gender fluidity um, are saying are happening are very, very tiny, tiny percentages. So, um, for the most part, it's being drummed up. And for all of us, then, in that majority that are are simply attempting to try and learn to get along relationally, romantically, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, no doubt s- some of the noise from the periphery is, is having an influence on that, and I think negatively so. For example, you know, there was a, a day and an age when men could openly appreciate the femininity of a woman, and likewise women could appreciate the masculinity of a man, and yet today uh, it's almost as if we've, we've made those um, taboo uh, terms, or, or in, in other cases, even treat them as if there's something wrong. For example, we hear, we hear the term often, toxic masculinity. Talk to us about that, and why, why, is there, why is there this paradigm shift that takes what is natural and normative behavior and somehow wishes to paint it as something evil and, and horrible? Well, I think there are some people... Craig, that uh, you know, are just going along with the crowd, and they're just preaching what they've they've been told. But I, I, I hate to say this, but I think that there's some destructive elements in our society that really want to destroy our society as as it's been handed down from the founders of the country. And I think this is part of that because I think they've realized that if you can destroy normal sexuality and destroy marriages, you know, you pretty much can just, uh, you'll end up destroying churches in a lot of cases by doing that, and then, you know, society is next. So so that's the kind of the dim view of it, but again, I think there's a lot of otherwise well-meaning people that go along with this, the ideas that they're being told, because they think they have scientific basis, which they don't, and they think that they're trying to do the right thing. They're trying to, you know, progress and treat people better and that type of thing, but there is an evil to it that uh, as it is at the base of it that is um, has a uh, malicious intent is what I would say. And, and if not intent, at least potentially a malicious outcome. Let, let's talk about some of this. Um, as I suggested in my opening remarks, there are scientifically demonstrative differences between men and women. And while there's been an effort to try and downplay those differences or, or, or demonize those differences, your book suggests that the better we understand those differences, and in some respects, I suppose, even embrace them, um, we can create, hopefully, an environment relationally between men and women uh, that acknowledges the emotional and biological differences and 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 can celebrate those in a fashion which is mutually beneficial. Walk us through what some of that looks like. Well, again, you beautifully uh, described the, the uh, hope of the book, so I appreciate that. Uh, again, men and women have uh, very many differences, especially when it comes to the area of sexuality. And, you know, these days with the Me Too movement and all the other things that are going on, a lot of which is, you know, uh, is legitimate, and there's cause for it, but then there's a certain amount of it that isn't legitimate, and it's being used as a, you know, it's weaponized. Um, there is uh, very little understanding on, on, for instance, the female side of things, of how men's minds work differently than theirs. And, 
and just the fact that most men have seven to eight times more testosterone, and some men have up to 183 times more testosterone than some women, and then the brain structure, how the brain structures are different, and there is so much more uh, sexual pursuit of brain in, in, the, in the male brain versus the female brain, and on the other hand, males don't understand, you know, females and how they think about unwanted uh, advances and that type of thing. Females basically uh, get get uh, threatened much much more um, easily, and and it, it traumatizes them a lot more. So, uh, just in that area of you know unwanted sex or sexual assault, there is a lot of room for both sides, both both sexes, to learn about the other one and, and then be able to function better. And really, Craig, for the first time in history, we really have the chemical knowledge and the anatomical knowledge to be able to really understand these things and to take to make use of that understanding. Perhaps the one challenge is that we seem to have somehow lost the the impulse control. And, and by that, I mean, uh, I, I would almost look at this and say it, it would seem in, in, in recent generations that we've created almost an incubator for some of this out-of-control behavior um, in, in so much as what I will term the, the over-sexualization of our culture today where everything, I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, sex sells and Madison Avenue learned that many years ago, but my goodness, now it seems as if entertainment and uh, marketing and certainly on the internet, it's everywhere. Is it any wonder then that seems to be out of balance then in terms of how it impacts our relationships? Yes, and again, it affects uh, men and women differently because women, excuse me, men are much more easily stimulated with visual uh, sexual stimuli and women less so so you know uh, again uh, it's hitting the, the different sexes in a different way and women are interpreting the way that men react to it one way and, and men are, are interpreting the way that women react or, or, or have a lesser reaction to it so it, it's, it doesn't really do anybody any good to have these unnatural levels of stimulation going on with these visual images, it definitely doesn't do the, the relationships between the sexes any good. And of course, you've got to imagine from a, from a, a physician's viewpoint, from a medical viewpoint, how problematic this is, where there was a season not that long ago that if a man wished to engage in certain kind of behavior or stimuli, you had to go looking for it. Today, you can be innocently sitting at your desk at work, open up an email that's erroneously a spam message, and boom, all of a sudden your senses are insulted by uh, pornography. So this this sense of, uh, I don't know what we call it, the, the, the sexual saturation of our culture today, does all of this ultimately have a very dilatorious, very ruinous impact on the way we relate to each other and ultimately our relationships? Yes, I mean, it's, you know, sex in a lot of ways, and especially on the male side of it, has addictive tendencies. And, you know, it works off the same uh, reward system in the brain, the dopamine reward system in the brain that, that all the illicit drugs do. So it's really, again, on the male side of it, and there's some exceptions to this, women, there's some women that would be, you know, prone to this as well. But on the male side of it, putting all this uh pornography and everything out there and, and making it so readily, readily available and as you just said making actually pushing it in, in people's lives um, again really lowers desensitizes I guess uh, especially young young men and, young, and boys 
desensitizes them to the seriousness of, of what sex has always represented. And, and again, it, the change, uh, 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 you know, this coming, coming has happened so quickly that we have not had a chance to even really adjust to it. Because what you're describing, really, I mean, again, I think in your, well, my childhood, I'll speak for myself, you're exactly right. If you, if as a young boy in my time, you'd have to go and, and search pretty hard to find something that's very, very tame these days. You know, that would be considered very, very tame. But uh, now, as you're saying, with the digital re- revolution and just the basically sexual anarchy <laughs> out there, um, it, it's it's really become a snowstorm, so to speak, of of, uh, of of the types of things that you know we couldn't have imagined when we were when we were kids. Looking forward. And society at certain levels is overwhelmed by this. We've seen that demonstrated within many of the revelations that have come, everything from sex abuse scandals within uh, the church to uh, certainly the Me Too movement. And then I hear things like a proposal where some companies are seriously considering uh, that if the, the over-sexualization as it impacts the business culture uh, can't be tamed, that we should just consider an, all, an outright ban on all physical contact in the workplace. Which means it, it's it's uh, even taboo to shake hands with someone. I mean, you're going to wave across the room. That seems to be creepier than to me than than a than a old fashioned handshake. But but maybe demonstrative of the fact that we as a culture are having a very difficult time dealing with this. Yes, yes, and it's really throwing the baby out with the bathwater. You know, on uh, that kind of situation because positive and appropriate human contact. Uh, you know, patting somebody on the back, shake, definitely shaking their hand, you know, uh, the type of thing that people do that, you know, indicates friendship, indicates a, a close relationship with them and a trusting relationship. To take that away, you know, there's a, this other chemical, uh, oxytocin that you've probably heard of, uh, that's, you know, the bonding chemical that's really raised by appropriate touch, and then especially like a hug, you know, that type of thing. A, a hug really has a tendency to raise that really very, very positive oxytocin chemical. So you really, I mean, I think they've found themselves in a situation that's um, become very extreme, and really they're making bad moves right now as far as trying to handle it. You're exactly right. I mean, but they do need to look to the science because the science has the answers, especially these days. And, you know, it's, it's like they're, they're in a blind alley with, with, without a light, you know, in the, in the darkness. We know certainly, even perhaps to the novice, that there are psychological factors that that impact our our relationships. But you you bring up an interesting point, and one of the things that I think makes your new book um, "Battles of the Sex" is very unique, and that is that you point to some of the physiological. Um, influences. For example, I, I, you know, I, who would have thought you'd find a chapter on the topic of junk food inside of a book dealing with this topic? But you have one. Take us a little deeper into that. Okay. Yeah, as I was saying about the, the males having trouble with the sexual stimuli because of our ancestral you know, situation, the females have a, a, a problem with, this, with food stimuli particularly because in the past, our ancestors, our, our uh, grandmothers, I guess you'd say, and, and great-grandmothers on back, with food being in such short supply, their, their amygdalas, which is the major uh, command, and, command and control system for the brain, uh, it, it's developed a sensitivity to food because food, food is so scarce, and it takes many more calories to create a, a child, 74,000 more calories above basal needs. 
for a woman. And so when food is in short supply, as it was through most of our history, uh, women that could get it, you know, again, uh, were more prone to survive and that type of thing. And and so uh, today, we, in this rich food environment that we're in, they they are drawn to food like men are drawn to sex. So uh, females' obesity rate continues to rise. It's at 40% now, which is unheard of in on in Earth history. And uh, men's has leveled off. So there's a reason that women these days have such a trouble, have a hard time with the food environment. And again, the food environment, Craig, would be very similar, you know, if you think about it, to the sexual stimuli environment. It's very plentiful. It's everywhere the food is, the junk food. And it's harmful right along with, you know, the sexual stimuli. So, and, you know, junk food, junk sex, they kind of equate to each other. And it's a pleasure center, center, isn't it? So, I mean, the, the ability for us to push ourselves back, I mean, you know, if you put a nice prime rib in front of me and say, there's the prime rib, it's, it's uh, two pounds, have at it, but you should really only eat a quarter of it uh, to, to say heart healthy, I'm going to have a difficult time because you're, 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 you're waving temptation in front of me. So it's the same thing here that the junk food addict, much as the, 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 the sexual addict, that there, is, there are aspects of this that, that obviously caters to the pleasure center and therefore it's difficult for us to gain control exactly and and the food companies no longer test these things in kitchens they test them in, test them in laboratories so you know the food that's coming at you from the fast food joint or you know even in the store in most of the store the prepared food that you buy out of the middle of it packaged uh it's all been tested in a laboratory to find the right combinations that will hit those pleasure centers that you're you're describing and again it hits the women's harder than it does the men as far as, you know, uh, the um, ability to step away from the temptation. So, so again, that's, kind of, that's why the, the book is called Battles of the Sexes, and it's the battle each sex is fighting these days against their own particular compelling issue, uh, sexual stimuli for the men and women more than the food stimuli. And, and as I think you suggest in the book, um, where of recent times we have tended as a culture and society to focus on the, the behavior as sort of the end game, um, your book suggests that we need to take a step further back and say that there are biological forces, which traditionally, you know, was kind of a given, today not so much so, uh, that we need to really also take into consideration in just in terms of how we are wired and, and how that wiring impacts our relationships. And at the end of the day, if we singularly focus on the behavior without understanding the wiring and the motivation and the drive behind all of it, then this battle will continue to rage on. Yes, yes, and I think that it's behind most of the problems we have today between men and women and the dissatisfaction, I guess, again, especially on the women's side of it for the way men act. But, again, if men could better understand themselves on a chemical level and women could understand themselves on a, on a chemical level better and then they could understand each other on a chemical level, then a lot of these problems, you know, sexual conflict is, is the official name for it, could be resolved before they even start because each each side would know what the other one's going through and they would be able to you know kind of tailor their actions to that and and 
get along better, as we say. You know, and a lot of the but, books that uh, are written on the broader topic um, uh, purport to target one gender or another. Uh, this book really attempts to to address both, and in, in in doing so, because you you not only need to understand, <coughs> pardon me, um, behavior, impulses. Um, and and the biological equation from your perspective, but also from your spouse's perspective, and, and maybe one of the mistakes of many other books is it just wants to reach out to one gender and help explain that gender and do so in a vacuum. This book really is sort of full circle approach to helping the reader, without regard to the gender, understand both what's going on with them, the differences based on science and biological realities, and then how to better understand, control impulses, and and ultimately uh, not eschew biological and emotional differences as something horrible and evil to be avoided or to be somehow nullified, but rather to embrace in a very positive fashion. The book, again, is called Battles of the Sexes, Raising Sexual IQ to Lower Sexual Conflict and Empower Lasting Love, uh, the new book published by Morgan James Publishing. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also get it on Dr. Malone's website, sexiq.org. That's sexiq.org. Our thanks to Dr. Joe Malone for being with us today on this segment of Lifeline. Look at that. He's back one day and already creating trouble and stirring up all the controversial hot topics. Your radio is sizzling, no doubt, at the moment. All right. If you're stuck in traffic, you might be sizzling too hot under the collar. Let's find out what's going on out there traffic-wise here at 631. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Somewhat innocuous sounding, or obnoxious as the case may be, sounding bit of music might seem to have come from some major Hollywood spectacle, or maybe even serve as a great theme song for this show some days. But in fact, it is the theme from one of the best-selling video games of all time, Call of Duty. And I've always marveled at those that will talk about what a wonderful teaching tool that computers can be, or television, and that children can watch a program like uh, Nat Geo and come back with all kinds of great facts and having expanded their horizons and understanding of life and the world and how engaging the computer can be as an educational tool. And yet, out of the very same mouths will come, well, there's no influence whatsoever of violent video games on children. How can you dare even suggest such a thing? Well, which is it going to be, folks? Can media, in particular television and interactive uh, uh, games and so forth, can they teach children or are they not teachers at all? 
Joining me now with some insights is Dr. Jane Anderson. She served for many years as a pediatrician at Mount Zion Center for uh, UCSF. And uh, Dr. Anderson, always a delight and an education to have you join us on the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> what, what about this debate? I, I just I never have quite understood, Dr. Anderson, how we can out of one side of our mouth suggest that television and computers are a wonderful teaching tool and the other one say that they at the same time have no influence on children who will spend sometimes hundreds of hours over the course of a month engrossed in violent video games that have no other purpose than racking up points killing people. Exactly. It's sort of why why do companies spend two point five, you know, million dollars for a thirty second commercial on the Super Bowl if they don't think it's going to influence our behavior. Precisely. So there the interesting thing for me is that there is so much new information on brain research. And researchers are now using brain scanning tools such as MRIs to evaluate children and teenagers uh, before and after and sometimes during um, the time that they're playing video games to see what happens. So we now have real brain data that shows that areas of our brain that are linked to desensitization to violence are activated during violent video games. We have more longitudinal studies that show us that children who play more video games are more likely to engage in violent behavior. And it doesn't mean that every child who plays video games is going to end up more aggressive, but it certainly plays into the tendencies, and there are a lot of reasons for it. Um, Violence uh, during video games is not just learned and demonstrated, it is repetitively practiced over and over again until you get it right. And then that violence is rewarded, so you get, um, you get to uh, go to higher levels or you get expanded tools of violence, so you get rewarded for your behavior. And, um, and so the violence becomes justified and it becomes, quote, fun. And then worse than that, it's what we call many of the games, like Call of Duty, Mortal Kombat, others, Doom. They are first-person player video games. In other words... When we think of Pac-Man, it was like take a you know take a joystick and make the you know little Pac-Man guy move. Um, you weren't actually Pac-Man, but the first-person player games, you are actually the player, and you see the world through the player's eyes. And that's why um, some of the school shooters had never held guns before. The kids in um, I believe it was Mississippi, had in Pearl, Mississippi. That student had never held a gun before, but he'd practiced on video games, and so he was able to have direct hits to students who were running, but he got them with one shot and killed them, which is, you know, better than most, you know, police agencies or soldiers can do, but he'd been practicing. Well, and we've seen cases where military, including our own, um, are, are extremely interested in talking to uh, potential recruits who have very high marks in video gaming because these same individuals who, as you point out, often have no experience shooting an actual weapon whatsoever, and yet when the gun is put into their hands for the first time, 
demonstrate remarkable levels of marksmanship. Why? Because the ability to load, reload, aim, and so forth, they've practiced all of that sometimes thousands and times over. I mean, in often cases, uh, Dr. Anderson, I would imagine just in terms of overall experience, albeit not with a real weapon, but still their level of experience is equal to or exceeds even what the police get on the firing range. Oh, sure. I mean, there. Th- one of the studies is from 2004, so it's old now, but boys between 8 and 13 years of age were playing 13 hours a week of video games, and most of those are violent. So although not all video games are violent, 10 of the top 20 game sellers are violent, and it is a multi billion-dollar industry, $11.7 billion um, we're spending. So I always like to tease and say, don't tell me we don't have enough money to do X, Y, Z. Excellent point. You make reference to a number of these studies that are out there, the growing body of evidence that suggests that, of course, there's a connection to violence after they've seen and been programmed uh, by this kind of so-called entertainment. I'm curious to find out what the brainwave activity is showing And most importantly, what needs to be the warning word here? Even after the heels of events like Sandy Hook, we're teaching our children that violence is entertainment. In real life, when we engage in wars that we do, we teach our children that that's the way adults settle disputes. And then when our kids grow up and turn the guns on us or act out violently against us, We wonder what happened to little Johnny that maybe because he wasn't breastfed as a child, he's acting this way. We've trained these kids to behave like this. Why are we, as a society, surprised? Rhetorical question. Better put, what can we who understand it and get it do to overcome all of this? We'll continue with more of our conversation with Dr. Jane Anderson as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So the um, five or six billion dollar a year video gaming industry says that their um, their entertainment has no influence on children and violent activity whatsoever. Of course, they would probably have um, upwards of five, six billion reasons why they would say that. Dr. Jane Anderson with us today with a bit contrarian insight on this topic. Dr. Anderson, you mentioned about this growing body of evidence, and I know there have literally been thousands of studies that have tied in uh, the, the impact of prolonged exposure to violent video games and the degree to which children who have a history of that as a form of entertainment, acting out in aggressive behavior, involvement in a violent manner with the authority, so on and so forth. What's the response to all of this? What should it be? I mean, we've been talking about this for years and years and years. Outside of parents waking up to certain realities, is it time for the government to begin interceding here and saying, you know what, just like we won't allow kids to see certain classifications of movies, we're not going to allow them to engage in certain classifications of violent video games? Well, you know, um, as much as I'm a conservative politically and I don't like government intrusion generally, 
um, I think if we compare it to, uh, just like you said, you know, if we compare it to like accessing alcohol or pornography or going into an X-rated movie, I think we can set some limits on children and adolescents. They are still under adult sort of authority, and, and I hate to use the word control, but should be <laughs> under control. So I think, yes, you know, California tried it. We, they passed a law to uh, limit the um, access of teenagers to <clears throat> the most mature rating or the most violent um, video games, but it was defeated by the Supreme Court as a right to um, freedom of speech. Um, but I think if we can limit, you know, sale of, of pornography, I think we can limit the sale of violent video games. But I really would encourage parents, um, until that time, <laughs> uh, they really have to be aware of um, the, the violence in the video games. And a lot of times it's not noticeable at the lower levels. If they're sitting next to their, you know, uh, teenager, they need to see, well, what's at the higher levels? And I want to really point out to all parents that boys are so susceptible. Uh, the way the boys' brains develop and their exposure to, to testosterone in utero at 12 weeks gestation, their brains develop differently, and they learn by competition and repetition. And that's exactly what video games are. So they're much more likely to become addicted and be influenced by the video games. So... For everybody, limit them, but especially for boys. And, you know, even parents of toddlers out there, the parents of toddlers who are listening and you're probably thinking, oh, well, you know, my kid's not affected by this. You know, you're handing them your iPad, your iPhone to keep them entertained, you know, while you're in the car or at the doctor's office, and you are teaching them that screen time is entertaining and you're not doing what we, we used to do as parents talking to them while you're, you know, in the car and playing word games and I spy out the window and, you know, helping them be creative and problem solve. And when they're at home, get outdoors and do things outdoors. There's so much that of life that our children are missing out on because um, they're, they're indoors playing video games. So I'd really encourage parents to be aware, keep computers, video games, consoles, everything out of the kids' bedrooms. We have documented evidence that children who have computers and TVs and games and stuff in their bedrooms, they do worse in school, they have more problems with obesity, they sleep less, they have more behavioral problems. It's like there are things that parents can do. You know, and the other thing that dawns on me is we were sharing the notion of not engaging children in, in the healthy way, that the kids of my generation, we had no choice. None of this stuff existed in those days. I think we barely had the electric light. Uh, but we, we tend to then train kids to be very inward-looking as opposed to outward-looking. There, there's no sense of wonder and awe about the world around them. It's all limited to, you know, the 13-inch diagonally measured screen of the computer in front of them. And, you know, I, I think that, that that, you know, not only leads to a tremendous degree of, of, of a false, distorted, sort of just two-degree, uh, two-dimensional, rather, view of the world uh, in spite of the best efforts at 3D. But, but then, too, Dr. Anderson, I mean, isn't there a degree to which there is a chemical high that kids get off of this, not just as they're advancing and they're making more points and they're able to, you know, engage in, in, in more points for more kills and things of this sort. But aren't we kind of – there's got to be sort of a, a brain chemical reaction to engaging in this violence through a video game. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, that's, that's where addictions come in, and there are definitely – 
you know, teenagers who and, and young, especially young young men, young men who are addicted to video games, and the addiction comes from the pleasurable response, and unfortunately. There's there's like a gate in our brain, and it's only going to let through certain sensations. So, for instance, if I'm sitting here, I'm not paying attention necessarily to where my feet are or what smells are in the room or whatever. The brain um, determines what is sensational, what is new, what is innovative and creative, and it lets those sensations through, which is why you have to have sort of different, more creative worse violence at the higher levels using worse vet weapons because that keeps that excitement and that adrenaline going and it allows your brain to take in that sensation and then it stimulates your dopaminergic system and um, that's what contributes to this need for more and more. No, just as much as we see the same thing played out in real life that oftentimes children who engage or, or adults who engage in violent behavior then do new, need to go higher and higher exactly. and higher in order to re- receive sort of the, the same kind of uh, chemicals uh, in, in enjoyment out that's of it. That's exactly right. So it it ought to be easy for parents to connect the dots, folks. So let's start connecting the dots. Now, urging our government at the state level and federal level to start putting bans and restrictions and tighter controls on this, age restrictions, things of that sort is very important. But I guess at the end of the day, uh, Dr. Anderson, it really comes down to the parents, doesn't it? It really does. And the video game industry does have ratings on the video game. So pay attention, you know, look on the box. You know, does it say E for everyone or does it say M for mature audiences only? And it will say on there if it's sexual, if it's violent, if it's, you know, um, if there's foul language, it'll say on there. So look and read. Um, Teenagers tell you their parents might set rules for the TV viewing, but they don't set rules for video game playing. Well, set some rules and set some guidelines. Meet with the teenagers hey, what do you think you're doing when you're, you're playing video games? What, be, what activities are you not participating in? Oh, you know, you're not outdoors exercising and playing on a team. And boys, by the way, learn so much about the real world by playing on a sports team. So, you know, get your – and girls do too, but boys more so. Get your guys out there playing, um, you know, reading, being creative. You know, it used to be kids would go outdoors and create the rules to a game, and they'd be creative. You know, you be this, I'll be that. And now it's just, you know, I'll sit here and sit side by side with my friend, and we'll both, you know, play video games together. It's like, no, there are so many wonderful alternatives, and the evidence is overwhelming in so many arenas of life, whether it's the physical development of the child, the emotional development, the cognitive development, even developing empathy and compassion, our brains develop that by looking at someone else's facial expression. Well, you can't see those changes when you're in front of a screen. How far we've come from the day and age when I was a kid and they couldn't get us to come back indoors, and today we can't get them to go outdoors. Our thanks to Dr. Jane Anderson for being with us in this segment of Lifeline. 
Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.